Welcome to Shekinah International Podcast. Our ministry reflects the five-fold ministry model Apostle Paul mentions in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. Our podcast features leaders from multiple churches who are passionate about equipping Christians just like you to walk in purity and power, fulfilling your God-given purpose. God wants to do great exploits through you, so enjoy today's podcast. Oh, God is good. It is 333. Come on, somebody. I'm just saying. You can't make that up, right? You cannot make that up. All right, Matt, you're going to have to do the PowerPoint slides. The battery in this might be dead today. So I had the honor and the privilege of going to celebrate Pentecost with some friends of ours down in Pawpaw, the ancient gate of Michigan. It was the first ancient capital among the First Nations people of Michigan. Donna's been there before, and it was awesome. Yes, it was so good. Um, Visited a friend of mine, Lori Boyd, who is an apostle down there, her and her husband Rick, Lorraine Rick Boyd. And they had people from Chicago, from New York, from Detroit, from Lansing, and I think there was one more place because there was five of us. Oh, obviously, Papa. (laughs) And it was just beautiful. It was a beautiful time. Friday night, we spent worshiping the Lord. We did um, the Shabbat hours, right? Lit the candles, had a feast together. Um, And it was just a really tender, precious time, very similar to what we do here on Tuesday nights. I told her when I went that it felt so much like home. You know how we're like a family and everybody hugs and it's real laid back and you just are who we are. And it was one of those kind of things. And I just felt at home. I just felt at home. And then Saturday, um, we worshiped some more and uh, took counsel together. Went to the before the courts of heaven to cancel some ancient decrees and old things that had been said by the Masons and by people from New York over Lansing specifically and over our state in general, and just rejoiced and decreed as the ecclesia, um, Christ's covenant over our state. Amen? It was a very powerful time. It was interesting because after we finished everything, there were two prophetic acts. One of them was um, one of the intercessors, prophetic intercessors there felt like they were supposed to, we went into this weeping and wailing time. The word came up from the Lord, where are my wailing women who are weeping between the, my porch and my altar? Where are they? And all of a sudden, weeping and wailing broke out in the room. Everybody's crying. It was like the glory of God came, just like you were talking about, and being on his knees and crying. And Everybody was, the men and the women, just weeping and wailing. They couldn't, it was uncontrollable. You couldn't stop. Like, you could feel the heart of God and his mourning or grief over the unsaved and the prodigals that are out there and over the nations of people. And a word came forth about, um, so she took all those Kleenexes we used, and she said, I feel like God wants us to mix our tears with this water. We happened to be in a room that was facing a body of water called the gates. Come on, you can't make that up. It goes all over the state and lets out in one of the larger bodies of water there in Lake Michigan. And so we obeyed the Lord. We did that. And then it was funny because immediately after we did that, there's a spider right by the door when we were about ready to come in. I was like, oh, nice try, Jesse. The Lord, I said, I'm going to squish it. You good with that? They're like, yeah, nobody wanted to step on it. I had sandals on. So I'm like, fling, fling that sucker right out the door. And then our way back in, we come in and we shut the door, and there's another one, a wolf spider, a black one. Somebody's like, 
I'm not squishing it. I'm like, you want me to squish it? Me and Jesse are on a first name basis now. <laughs> so I just step on that sucker. That one was a little more stubborn. Took me a minute to get it outside. But I felt like, Father, it reminded me of Elijah. When he defeated the prophets of Baal, and he was, we were talking about getting refilled today, getting refreshed today, that the, the season that we've been in that some of us have gotten kind of dry because we've obeyed the Lord and we poured everything out. You remember Elijah did that. He fought hand-to-hand combat with the prophets of Baal and built that whole altar and poured all the water on there to prove to him, hey, my God is God, not this Baal that you're worshiping, right? So you think he might have been tired, 200 prophets, one man, hand-to-hand combat. I'm just saying. Can anybody relate to that? I can in this season, okay? I've been there. So when we got, when I got the overflow and that oil started coming today, I was like, this is a word for me. Thank you, Jesus. And Lori said something that was profound. She said, it's in our times of rest after a big victory when the enemy will try to come and get you to do something completely contrary to what God told you to do before. The prophet was in the cave and, you know, having a poor me victimization moment about how he was the only prophet left and there was nobody else that loved God the way that he did. Where were all the people that were supposed to be helping him? And it says that uh, Ahab and Jezze had a talk and she said, I will basically destroy him. So this threat was out there, right? And he ran for his life. The same prophet that did hand-to-hand combat with 200 of her false prophets and called on the name of the Lord and saw the fire come down to lap up all the water and the altar and basically made fun of him. Was your God on the toilet? Literally in the Hebrew. Is your God busy going to the bathroom, so busy he can't come and answer your prayer? My God answered my prayer, right? They won that huge battle. But he was tired. And here she comes. So I just I want to throw that out there because we're coming into a season right now of relaxation and rest from a couple years of worrying. And that's when the enemy will come and try to take you off whatever course God told you to stay on. Today is Pentecost, okay, or Shavuot in the Hebrew. I want to talk a little bit about that because it is an amazing and exciting holiday, both for believers and for the Jewish people. Shavuot literally means weeks, and it refers to the biblical holiday celebrated on Sivan 6. It's the anniversary. It can mean Shavuot or Shavuot means weeks. It celebrates the completion of a seven-week omer, which is the counting period between the second day of Passover and Shavuot. Okay? Just in case you were wondering. Remember we celebrated Passover as a family this year, right? And it was really a remembrance about the finished work of Christ. If you listened to everything Alan was leading us through as we drank the wine and broke the bread and read the scriptures, it all pointed back to the finished work of Jesus and that blood on the doorpost on our behalf, right? Well, this is really neat because there's technically on this day 50 days, which 50 is the number of Jubilee, right? Between Passover and and Pentecost. And I was reading through this and I thought, Lord, what do you want to what do you want to tell your people? You can do the next slide, darling. It's also the day of the giving of the Torah. So this is the day that God allowed Moses and Joshua, his assistant, to go up the mountain. And Moses went up for 40 days and got the law from the Lord. 
Now, we know he had to go up twice, right? First time he threw a fit, he got mad at the people. God broke the tablets and went back up, right? Do you, but do you remember what the people said? We will do everything God has told us to do. We will. And it was interesting this weekend because as we were doing the, they call it the Council of Fire, and we did those decrees and declarations, the leader of the group said, will we do this? If we will, say we will. And I said, only by the grace of God, we will. Because I was remembering that verse. In and of myself, apart from Christ, I can do no thing. So when we started, got to that point where we said we will, I said, by the grace of God, we will. And that that became the, what we would say over and over again. Because the truth is, we will not do jack diddly apart from Jesus. We can't. If we're not connected to the vine, if we're not filled with the Holy Spirit, we will be doing absolutely nothing that's beneficial for the kingdom. We can know things and understand things in a worldly sense and completely be operating out of our flesh. Amen? So it's, I just think that's awesome. Not only is it the holiday where the Omer is collected, um, with the counting of the Omer, but it's also 50 days, which is a jubilee after Passover. The Omer refers to the 49-day period, the seven-week period between the second night of Passover, Pesach, and the holiday of Pentecost, Shavuot. This period marks the beginning of the barley harvest when the, in ancient times. And the Jews would bring the first sheaves to the temple as a means of thanking God for the harvest. The word omer literally means sheaf. When you were finishing a worship, I was remembering that psalm that talks about um, the one that goes out weeping, carrying seeds to sow, will come back carrying sheaves with them. In other words, in this dry season, which we were talking about in worship, when we feel like we're empty, if we choose to sow seeds anyway while the tears stream down our face, trusting in our God to carry us, we will reap a huge harvest. And in that season, you'll come back with a whole sheaf. A sheaf is a big old bundle. A harvest from the seeds that you sowed. And Pentecost is that time where we get to see the harvest. We're literally counting the first 49 days, that barley coming up. But listen to this. Mm, this blessed me today. The word omer literally means sheaf, and it refers to the meal offerings presented to God. It's one-tenth of an, e of an ephah in the Hebrew. I thought that was so cool. I didn't know that. Alan probably knew that, but I didn't know that. Does that remind you of anything? One-tenth, come on, 10%, baby. I'm just saying. Beautiful. Isn't that neat? The same Hebrew word also means oaths. Some of us made commitments or oaths to the Lord. We go back and we look at what God said he would do or what we said we would do or the things and directives that he asked us to do. And we go back and we look over those. We say, okay. It sort of signifies, yeah, I'm bringing the omer. I'm bringing the oaths, the things you asked me to do, the directives you gave me back to you, Lord, and here's the fruit that I see because I obeyed you. And I can look back over this year and see some things that God asked me to do that I didn't understand what they were at the time, but I see the fruit thereof today. And we had victory, 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 victory. 
And I'm like, thank you, God. I present those back to God because apart from him, we can do nothing, right? But by the grace of God, there go I. But he gave me the grace and he gave me the strength and he gave me the favor and he gave me the wisdom. And he opened the doors and he filled me with his love and granted me the grace to continue in his way. Amen. And he do that for you too. This is really neat, too, because it's not just a celebration of the wheat harvest or the barley harvest. It's also a celebration of the wheat harvest. So there's two names they use, okay? It's the reason that the other two biblical names for this holiday are both the first fruits and the harvest festival. So we know that the Lord told us the parable about the wheats and the tares, and that they would have to be separated, right? I just think it's interesting. Yet it's the first fruit for the barley, but it's a harvesting festival of the wheat. And this year, I know a lot of people who bore 30, 60, 100 fold. You are the wheat. And if you ask Holy Spirit to show you. He's going to show you how he multiplied himself in you and through you to bear fruit in this last season. And I was meditating on that today. I was like, wow, Lord. I was thinking about all the people in our gathering. I was thinking about all the people touched through Coggle. I was thinking about all the prayers I prayed for the people who were sending me nasty texts. And I was like, Lord, definitely hundredfold this year. <laughs> Like, this was an astronomically odd amount of persecution the last two years. But I got a harvest. I got a harvest. I look different than I did a year ago. I look different than I did two years ago. I look different than I did three years ago. Christ has more of me. And Christ has more of you. And it's a time to celebrate. Oh, you're so good, Lord. I'm counting the omer. I'm counting the new thing that you're doing but I'm also celebrating everything you've done. And I'm looking at the fruit in me, signifying the wheat, the believer. Amen? And you can take a moment and ask him to show you the fruit in you. Isn't that good? I want to give you a little bit of context. You can go to that next slide, Matt. In the New Testament, we're going to mostly be working out of the book of Acts, chapter 1 and 2. So if you want to open your scripture up to that, go right ahead. You'll be able to follow along pretty easily. I won't be bouncing around too much. I know we normally do, but I just I won't be doing that today. Go ahead and turn to Acts 1, if you've got your Bible with you. I was hearing Miss Laura just now in my spirit. <laughs> this is my Bible, God's Word. <laughs> if I read it. And obey it, it will what? Change my life. I could just hear her saying that in the spirit just now. I love it when she does that. So I want to talk a little bit about the context of Pentecost. We're all familiar with the story of the believers being in the upper room and the Holy Spirit coming in. But I want to give a little bit of context for this. Okay, So we're going to start in Acts 1 and 4. Okay, And it says this, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait 
For the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Come on, somebody. The author is reminding the Christians what God said. Don't be presumptuous. Don't go out until I fill you. You have knowledge. You were with me these, all these years. But I'm asking you to be still and not shift until I baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Because you need the unction to function in the calling that I've called you to. It's one thing to know a thing up here, and it's another thing to be thrown into the middle of a war zone and have to operate in it by the grace of God. Amen? Two totally different scenarios. There are a lot of things I knew up here in my head. I know that. I know that. I know this. I know that. But then when I had to actually apply it to my life and walk it out, it was a whole different ballgame. I needed that unction. I needed the power. I needed the love of God. I needed the grace of God to be able to walk it out. So the context of the upper room experience was they were waiting. They were obeying the word of the Lord to wait in Jerusalem, to wait in the place where they were until. And then in Acts 1, 7, and 8, it's interesting to me, the context of this, because the Lord's telling them to wait, and the Israelites are asking Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you coming to rule and reign now? Like, are you going to make this all right? Are you going to bring justice? I want to see this. We're so excited. We can't wait. We know some things, and we think that it's going to look like this. You anybody else been there besides me? Mm-hmm. That's all right. And this is so cute. I love one, seven, and eight, because Jesus' response just shows so much patience toward the disciples and so much grace toward them. He says, Lord, he says, it's not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Isn't that interesting? So Jesus tells him to stay in the city. And then he says, oh, by the way, I'm not going to do this. You're going to do it. What? Say, what, Willis? What are you talking about? <laughs> sort of like the couple times I had to go and I was flying around, and I'm like, no, I can't run this event. We're going to do this event, but you guys are going to run. You're like, what are you talking about? You're not even going to be here? <laughs> Right? You ever been in that situation like, wait a minute, what, what, da, 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 da. that was a really good idea until I found out I actually have to lead and do something. I wanted to serve Jesus until I realized it, it requires responsibility and work. I love what Chris Valentin says. He says, promotion just means more responsibility in the kingdom. That's why Jesus said the greatest among us is the servant of all. Because the greatest among us doesn't run from responsibility. It doesn't run from accountability. It stays put and it says, yes, Lord, I'll lay my life down again. I'll serve you. Yes, Lord, I'll lay my life down again and I will serve you. Yes, Lord, I will lay my life down again and I will serve you. As you've done it to the least of these, so have you done it unto who? Unto me. So 
They were commanded to stay in the city until they received the promised gift. They were struggling with, is this takeover time? Is this the mega victory time? Are we going to be like, woohoo? You know? The sons of Abraham who have taken the land move, step aside while the king of kings comes and rules and reigns on our behalf. And by the way, he's with us. <laughs> right? It's, uh, it goes on in Acts 1.9, and it says, after he tells them that they're the ones that are going to go and take dominion, it says in Acts 1.9, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. So imagine with me for a minute how the disciples are feeling. They've been following Jesus every day, all day long, for several years. They gave up their jobs. They were fishermen. They gave up their income. They gave some of them up family and relationships to follow him. And in the culminating day after the crucifixion, after he comes back and meets with them, he says, you will receive power. You will be my witnesses. And then all of a sudden, there he goes. Can you imagine the tension in the room? Like, whoa, 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 what do you mean? You're not going with us? Hold on. Hey, 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 stop, stop. No, don't leave us here by ourselves. <laughs> right they'd seen a lot of things and they'd kind of done some things with the lord but they weren't quite sure maybe that was going on with them right like i don't know right or maybe the opposite you know we'll read about peter in a second it's kind of funny so it gives you a little context for what was probably realistically going on in their hearts right sort of like being at a new job if your boss has you facilitate the meeting for the first time Right? And you're like, hey, 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 whoa, <laughs> hold on. Can you give me a little direction? Can I use your templates? Can you give me some kind of aid here? Right? Next slide. Here's the full context of this. I love it. They were looking intently up into the sky. So Jesus has risen, and he's up and gone, and they're still standing here looking. Like, is he coming back now? Like, is it going to be a few minutes? Like, where are you? Did, where did it go? Did we really just see that? Did that really just happen? <laughs> Anybody had a vision or an experience or an encounter with the Lord? And you're like, I know I saw this, but that was so like, whoa. I mean, Lord, I saw this, right? You've been there? Okay, it's like, okay, I got to write it down while I'm still very clear on what I saw so the enemy can't come in and snatch up that seed. So in Acts 1, 9, and 11, it says, they were looking intently up to the sky as he was going, just watching. So I can imagine Jesus was becoming smaller and smaller and smaller and further and further away, and they're like losing the one they love in the moment. Maybe some of them are remembering that verse where they said, you know, they don't fast now, but when I go, they will, Right? And they're like, oh, yeah, we better fast. He, he was serious about that. He, he really left us here by ourselves. I'm ready. I, we need him, right? And I love this. It says, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Right? So they're looking intently up in the sky. All of a sudden, these two guys dressed in white pop up beside them. Might have startled them a little bit. Whoa. Men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? Like, are you, you don't want to spend your whole day looking. He's not coming back right now. He's not coming back anytime soon. Come on. Remember, he said he's going to send you. I need you to get your eyes off the sky and back on the mission. They said, the same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven. In other words, they told 
them where he went, which Jesus has already told them, yes, you saw what you saw. It's true. It's real. It's valid. Just like he said, he was going up to heaven. The same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. No timing. They didn't, maybe they thought, well, it'll be a couple days. He's just going to leave us for a couple days, and then he'll be back. We'll tell everybody it'll be great, right? And then they get into year two and year three, and they're like, wait a minute. He said he's going to come back the same way. So I wonder if as they went forward and obeying, they're like watching and looking, you know, every day, like, is he coming today? Do you ever think about that? Do you ever have days like that personally where you're like, I really hope he does come today, Lord. Are you coming today? Right? I just thought that was fun, the angels. So from day one of Jesus being gone, they started to have angelic in interactions. And we've been told in the church that that's weird or it's flaky or it's odd, but the reality is it's normal. It's the way, if you will. They used to be called the way is what they called the Christians. This is the way. I am the way, Jesus said, the truth and the life, right? So they called the Christian lifestyle the way. It is the way to interact with angels and in the supernatural. It started off for them on day one. I don't know why I feel like I'm supposed to say that. I feel like that spirit of religion, especially in America, has come in and said, no, that's weird. No, that's flaky. No, that's odd. We shouldn't participate in that. And yet on the very first day, Jesus was taken up. He sent two angels to encourage his disciples. And I'll tell you what, he's still doing it today. He's still doing it today. And you might be thinking, well, I haven't seen one. Well, ask and you shall receive. I'm going to share. I'm going to just share a quick story. Um, well, I've got three, kind of three angel stories, but I'll, I'll boil them down a little bit. There's a lady who's part of Winman. Her husband was dying, and she's in the hospital. The husband's laying on the bed there, and she's crying out to the Lord, Lord, please, you know, I need you to send me somebody. I need help. I need encouragement. I know my husband's going home, but I need you. And she said, all of a sudden, these two very joy-filled, weird-looking nurses popped their heads through the door like this, through the little, you know, the little sheet that they hang around? And just looked at her. They didn't say anything. They just looked at her, and she's like, hi. <laughs> They're like, hi. She says, are you guys clergy? She's, They're like, yeah, yeah, we're here to help you. We're just here to help you. She's like, really? Mm-hmm. We're here to help you. She says, well, what I really need right now is prayer. Do you pray? And they look at each other like this, smile, and look back at her and go, yes, we pray. And she got this little inkling like, this is odd, this is strange, but I feel safe. I don't feel like I'm in danger. And she said they both looked at each other and said, yeah, yeah, we pray. And she said, would you pray for my husband? And I'll never forget this story because of what, how they prayed. She said they began to proclaim the names of God. That was all they did. Jehovah Rapha. 
Jehovah Sabaoth. Jehovah Shalom. That was the prayer. She said you could feel the atmosphere in the room shift, and immediately she knew these were angels. She started to weep. And she's like, thank you, God, you answered my prayer. She knew it was her husband's time to go. She had peace about releasing him. And she knew they were there to get him and there to comfort her. But I found that story funny because they just walked in the room, peeked their little head through the curtain like kids, right? That childlike faith. And then do you pray? And they kind of look at each other with little giggles like, <laughs> yeah, do we pray? That's all we do 24 hours a day, honey. <laughs> yes, we pray. But the way they prayed, that they just said the names of God, they spoke who he is, and it shifted things in the room. It's so powerful. I was on a trip with Kathy Braun one time, actually, headed to D.C., and we got off the elevator, and for some reason I was turned around, and this beautiful African-American-looking man had these long braids, and he was in a security guard outfit. But he kept smiling at me all weird, like he knew me. <laughs> He's like, big smile, kind of like the guys peeking their head through, like, hey. And in my spirit, I'm like, Lord, is that an angel? And the guy walks over and he goes, hi, I'm just here to keep everybody safe today. That's all he said. Because during that time, what was going on in D.C. around January 6th, and he just smiled at me with this weird smile, and all of a sudden I knew in my spirit, I'm pretty sure I just saw an angel. So Kathy was in the bathroom. She comes out, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure I just saw an angel. She goes, what? I said he was really beautiful, and he was, like, gloriously gorgeous, you know what I mean? Like, he was glowing. He had these long braids. He was African-American. He had a security guard outfit on, and he just walked up to me, and I said, hi. Like, he knew me. She goes, what? She's like, it probably was an angel, Stephanie. And I just knew. You just know. There are tons of stories about it. When Peter got imprisoned, it says that the, they were all praying, and the, he walked up. The angel let him out of prison, walked him out of prison. He thought it was a vision, but it wasn't. And he actually comes up to the house where they're praying and knocks on the door, and the little girl opens it up, is so excited, shuts the door on him, and goes and tells everybody, Peter's angel is here. I'm like, what? <laughs> it was actually Peter, but they so practiced the reality and understood the reality that angels are real, and they come and they speak to us, and they are there as messengers of God that she was convinced that was his angel, not Peter, and they were still praying. I was like, come on. This is a real deal. This is the season we're coming into. These are the things that God's going to be doing in and through you when you need assistance. And it won't be like they say, angels unaware. They're sent to minister to us, to cause, to hasten, to perform the word of God that's sent forth out of his mouth, out of our mouth. Isn't that exciting? Go ahead and go to that next slide. So they see the angels and, you know, they obey God. They go back to Jerusalem. And I was reading in Acts 1.13, and this stuck out to me. I thought this was really interesting. It says, in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. And I found that interesting because Peter was the one who denied God, denied Christ at the cross. Right? And of all the people that would have confidence in that moment, Peter was the one. We think about that scripture that says, she who's forgiven much, what? Loves much, right? And Peter had an 
intimate knowledge of the goodness and the love of God on his life when he was restored at the edge of the water that day. He jumped out of the boat, ripped off his cloak, and went and ran to be with the Lord, and he restored him. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know. You know all things. You know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, only you know. You know all things. Peter, do you agape me, Lord? You know I flail you. I love you as a friend. But I failed you. I don't yet agape you. He says, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. In other words, I understand you made a mistake. I understand you missed it. I understand that you thought you were here and you missed it and you're actually only here. But I'm still calling you to feed my sheep. I'm still calling you to feed my lambs. I've still chosen you, Peter, if you're willing to serve. And I love it. He had experienced in an intimate way the restoration, the forgiveness of God personally. He understood the cross in a way that the others didn't quite understand yet because they hadn't had that personal, public, embarrassing, shame-filled failing. Isn't that interesting? So it goes on a little further. And Peter stands up among them, and he's the one that says, basically, we need to replace Judas. We had a betrayer in our midst, right? He went where the Lord said he was going to go. You know, he bought that land for the silver that he got for betraying the Lord and leading him to his death. He says his loins or his belly was opened up and his intestines spread all over the land and it was defiled from then on. But Peter got the revelation. The one who betrayed him. The one who he restored. The first one who was restored got the revelation. We need to replace Judas. In Acts 1, 24 and 26, it says, Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. And that hit me hard this morning. Because sometimes we look at a Peter or we look at someone who's been publicly shamed or embarrassed like that, and we make judgments about him, right? Man, they really messed up. They deserve this, right? But Peter humbled himself under the mighty hand of God, and God restored him. It says, they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. And the Lord knew Peter's heart. The Lord called Peter. The Lord restored Peter. The Lord gave Peter the revelation that Judas needed to be replaced. And sometimes we look at ourselves and we might think, man, I really messed that up. I could have done this a whole different way. And people might be looking at you and saying, you know, You're right. You're not the one God's going to call, but God's saying, I still called you. You're mine. You humbled yourself. You received the restoration, and I'm calling you now to go and beckon the others to come in as well. In fact, I'm going to let you lead my people. Lord, you know everyone's heart. And And they say, show us which of the two You have chosen to take over the apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. That hit me hard today, too. To go where he belongs. That's heavy. 
Jesus said, I didn't lose any of them that you gave me except for the one appointed. I mean, think on that for a second. It, that was, I couldn't swallow that real good this morning. But I think about that verse that talks about the vessels. Some vessels are created for noble purposes and some for ignoble. It doesn't change the fact that God is love. It doesn't change the fact that he longs for them to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's just that in his sovereignty, in his omnipotence, in his ability to be omnipresent, he knows the end from the beginning. He's the Alpha and the Omega, and he knows which ones are going to choose the ignoble purposes and which ones will choose the magnanimous and noble-hearted purposes and say yes to him. So Peter gets this revelation. Go ahead and go to the next slide, honey. And I just thought, I wonder if that restored Peter's heart a little bit. I think Peter probably looked at things a little bit differently after falling and failing and being restored by the Lord. And, and I wonder if he felt a little bit of love in that moment when God gave him that revelation, if he felt a little bit of encouragement when Father God used him among the all 120 to stand up and say, this is what I hear the Lord saying. This is the priority. This is what Father wants. And God will do that for you. On Pentecost, they were all together in one place. They were waiting on the Lord. They'd seen the Lord be taken up. And they were waiting for that promise that he said, the Holy Spirit will come and will give you power. This is the Passion Translation, not the NIV, just because it was depicted so beautifully in this particular version. It says in Acts 2, 1 through 4 in the Passion Translation, on the day Pentecost was being fulfilled, all the disciples were gathered in one place. I was just having a conversation with someone today about um, a friend of ours that said, you know, I don't, I don't need to be rooted anywhere. I just need to go where God tells me to go and do what God tells me to do and hear my heart in this because I know you're here today. I love you. Um, but this one particular individual really doesn't have a family that they connect to. And it's a really dangerous place to be. Because you can't go deep unless you get rooted into a community. Your roots never get deep because you're always picking up and walking and going somewhere else, right? So your fruit isn't tried like it is when you're in a community, right? It says, suddenly, they heard the sound of a violent blast of wind rushing in the house from out of the heavenly realm. The roar of the wind was so overpowering, it was all that anyone could hear. I have not had that experience yet as far as hearing the sound of the violent wind and hearing Holy Spirit in that particular way. I mean, we've heard guitars speak, monier, monier, truth, right? Greek words <laughs> or Hebrew words. We've experienced the glory, the weight of his glory, not being able to get up. We've experienced a lot of really fun things, but I, I have not seen that. I wonder what the disciples felt. I wonder if they were nervous or excited or startled 
or joyful, full of hope. It says, then all at once, a pillar of fire appeared before their eyes. So you're sitting in church, and all of a sudden, there's a pillar of fire right here in front of the pulpit. Whoa. (laughs) I mean, put it into context. Think about it. You're in a prayer meeting with 120 of the closest followers of Jesus, this remnant, and you're praying and crying out to God, fellowshipping, doing what you've done for however many days, 50 days, 49 days. And a pillar of fire literally shows up, but nothing's burning. I wonder what thoughts went through their head. Is this going to (laughs) hurt? I don't know. Like, am I going to smell like smoke? (laughs) Do I have to walk through the fire? Like, what direction are we going here with this, Lord, right? I mean, think about it. That's not an everyday normal occurrence. So they're in this prayer meeting, and a literal pillar of fire shows up in the room. Now, they're all Jews, so they knew the story about the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire. The smoke led them by day, the fire led them by night. So they understood what was in the room. The Shekinah glory, the presence of God, had arrived. It says, this pillar then separated into tongues of fire that engulfed each of them. I mean, imagine what's happening then. Did it, did it all happen at once? Or did the neighbor next to you get engulfed first, and you're like, whoa, it is going to eat us up, right? What did that even look like? It says, engulfed each one of them, separating the tongues of fire and engulfed each one of them. They are all filled and equipped with the Holy Spirit, and were inspired to speak in tongues. So you're sitting next to your friend. All of a sudden, that fire splits off in all these tongues, and the person right next to you, and you're like, whoa, I never heard that before. What's going on there? And they got fire on them, right? I mean, can you imagine, like, the fear of the Lord in the room? Seriously? Seriously. Okay, he's gonna, you're next, you're next, especially for those that people that don't like getting out of their comfort zone. <laughs> I can just imagine, right? Peter likes to be in control, <laughs> sitting on the front row, and here comes the fire of God on the person next to him. They start speaking in tongues, and I can just see Peter's eyes getting all big, like, oh, boy, here we go. Right? I mean, there's some churches, they kick you out and call you a heretic these days. Oh, I have to laugh. It says they're all filled and equipped with the Holy Spirit and inspired to speak in tongues, empowered by the Spirit to speak in languages they had never heard. That's powerful. And what's awesome about this is they didn't know they were speaking in other languages until they got out in the world. I mean up in the upper room, it probably just looked like gibberish to them, right? They're all Jews. They all spoke Hebrew. You know, maybe maybe Andrew or somebody is, who knows, right? Speaking in some Asian tongue and somebody else is speaking in Turkish and somebody else is speaking in Latin. Somebody else is speaking in Spanish, right? And you're like, You don't know the language. So amongst the disciples, they didn't even know what was going on, except they'd been, they've gotten this power, and they were empowered and equipped to speak 
forth something with boldness, which may have sounded like gibberish to them. So when you look at Acts 2, 5, and 6, this is so funny. It says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, so the, these God-fearing Jews also heard the sound. What sound is he talking about? Listen. A crowd came together in a bewilderment. They were completely thrown off because they heard the sound. You know, maybe 15, 16 different languages being spoken at the same time. I don't know. Did they hear the sound of the rushing wind? Right? And like, whoa, they're drawn away. Now they hear all these people speaking really loud in their language with a bunch of other people speaking in different languages, right? But it says, because each one heard them speaking in his own language, they were utterly amazed and asked, are not all of those men who are speaking Galileans? Wait a minute. Aren't those all Americans? And they're speaking in Chinese and Turkish and Latin and Greek and whatever other language, right? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native tongue. So like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. So they're having conversations with each other, going, I, um, they're speaking to me in Chinese. No, they're not. They're speaking to me in Turkish. No, they're not. They're speaking to me in English. No, honey, they're speaking Spanish, <laughs> right? So among themselves, the Gentiles are like, wait a minute, what? how can all this be true? But it is. I'm hearing it in my language. It says they were amazed and perplexed. Go ahead and go to that next slide, Matt. So as I was reading this, I just thought, this is the power of the Holy Spirit. As we continue to read in Acts, it shows you all the, some of the different wonderful ways that Holy Spirit manifests. And we got to see, you know, that today, speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues draws people to God. We do it in our midst, too, because it's the heavenly language, right? It's the perfect Holy Spirit gives us the perfect prayer. But in this particular instance, it was meant to draw the Gentiles to, or the God-fearing, non-believing Jews to Christ. And they were so caught off guard by the reality of these individuals to be able to speak their language, their heart language, that it drew them to the place where all this commotion was happening. That's in Acts 2.12. Acts 2.13 Holy Spirit graces us with revelation to boldly proclaim the gospel. Look at what it says here. <laughs> this is cute. It says, some of them, okay, so some of them were bewildered and excited and praising God, and some of them made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. They're just drunk. You heard that about certain meetings where people come in and they say, oh, those people are just drunk. They're crazy. We've had a couple of those here, right, where Laura's falling on the floor and we can't stop laughing. We don't know what's wrong. Holy Spirit's showing up, and you talked about this today during worship. Righteousness, peace, and joy is the kingdom. Sometimes that joy comes so full, so strong, so heavy, because there's such a healing that needs to be done in the heart of the person that the individual can only laugh because they're elated, and God is ministering, and God is healing, and God is blessing, Right? 
It says, then Peter stood up in verse 14 with the 11 and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Now, Peter was always kind of bold, but after what he went through, I love that he's the one God used to stand up and to be bold again. It says he stood up. So all this commotion's going on. All these people are speaking in all these different languages. And people are starting to gather around. They're arguing with each other. No, I'm hearing it in my language. No, I'm hearing it in my language. What is going on? They must be drunk, some said. And others were like, eh. No, I know what I'm hearing. And I wonder what Father God or Holy Spirit was saying to them. Was he sharing the gospel? Right? For some of them to not say, for all of them not to say they were drunk, they must have been sharing something of substance that spoke to the hearts of some of them, right? And Peter stands up and boldly proclaims the gospel to them. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk. First thing out of my mouth, he rebukes them. They're not drunk. Let me just, let's just put that to bed. We realize we look like we're drunk, (laughs) but I promise you we're not. Let's just set that aside and tell you what's really going on here. They're not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning, right? No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And for a second time, God chose the one that was humiliated publicly and denied him three times and restored to be bold and to speak to these people. And Holy Spirit unction came up through him to tell them this is what's going on and gave him the revelation that it was connected to the book of Joel when he said he'd pour out his spirit on the sons and daughters and they would prophesy and dream dreams. That he pour his spirit out on all flesh. Holy Spirit came on Peter, the broken one, the one that messed up, the one that completely denied him on that day. The one who understood the cost and why he needed the cross. Unctioned him and said, they aren't drunk. Let me tell you what's going on here. This is God. And this is where it's written. I love it. I love it. The spirit of religion, the spirit of politics, and the spirit of the world will tell us, if you don't have it all together, God can't use you. That spirit of accusation comes. But Father God says, I choose the weak things of the world to confound the wise. And I'm not talking about messy grace. I'm talking about individuals who understand the cost that Christ paid on their behalf. And because of that, they turn from their wicked ways, and they call on the name of Christ, and they say, Lord, you know my heart. You know I messed up. You know I'm still struggling with A, B, or C. And that spirit of religion kind of judges, right? Who do you think you are? You're not perfect like me. Oh, I didn't know you were perfect. I mean, the very fact that you're saying that tells me that you're not, by the way, right? The spirit of accusation, that's the enemy. And the Lord comes along and says, no, I love you. I died for you. This is why I had to go to the cross. I'm restoring you. I've called you. Feed my sheep, love. Feed my lambs, honey. They need to hear from someone who understands why they need me. 
So if something's going on or you feel like you've missed it or you had a bad day, God wants you to know that's exactly why he's called you. You're qualified in that you recognize the reality that you need redemption. Come on, somebody. It goes on in Acts 2.36. I'll skip over there real quick. And he begins to share the gospel. It says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. I thought, whoa, that's gutsy, considering you denied him like a couple weeks ago, <laughs> a month and a half or whatever, right? So the healing was so complete in Peter. The, he really, the restoration process was so healing that he could boldly say to them, you crucified him. Be, and I think, you know, in our flesh, we might think, well, he's just judging them. But it's different because Peter was just the one that crucified him, too. I think when he said this, he knew he had crucified him, too. And there was a tone of love behind it that says, you crucified him. And I can, listen to this next sentence. It's beautiful. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent. And I don't think it was a haughty, repent, you sinners. I think it was a brokenhearted, I've been where you are, repent. Taste and see that the Lord is good because I have tasted and I have seen and it has filled every dry place in me. It's the love that I longed for, the touch that I needed, the revelation that I wanted. The family I'd been seeking, the peace I'd asked for. Taste and see. The name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, he said, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I love this piece because some say you have to get a separate baptism of Holy Spirit. But the truth is, if there's genuine repentance, this verse tells us right here. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, through repentance and baptism. You will receive the Holy Spirit. Now, some people later in the scriptures, it tells us they're just baptized in the name of Jesus. They weren't baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit like we do now. When we put you under the water like that and you proclaim publicly that you come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and you go down and we baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you come up filled, literally filled with the power to live a new life. You're literally a new creation in that moment. Isn't that beautiful? Just beautiful. So he heals Peter's heart so wholly that he's able to be bold and to, to speak that to these other individuals who don't know him yet. And then in Acts 2.42, it tells us that the Holy Spirit granted them the power to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, being in communion with other believers, and to the act of communion partaking of the communion, doing this in remembrance of him, breaking bread. 
remembering the finished work on their behalf so that they didn't get into religious ways or political ways or law-based practice of doing, 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 but they remained being one with him. When they took the drink, they remembered, okay, our sins are forgiven because he poured out his blood. When they broke the bread and took the bread, they remembered, okay, our bodies are healed because he was beaten and bruised. The iniquity of our hearts, the very sin roots in our hearts are able to be rooted up and we're able to be made completely pure because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through Christ Jesus our Lord. It says he was bruised for the iniquity of our heart. That means the root sin, that thing that's a part of who you are apart from Christ. I love it. The power of the Holy Spirit enables us to heal the sick. In Acts 3.8, there's a story about Peter. Okay? Peter and John. They walk by this guy at the gate, beautiful. Beggar. It says they healed him. Not them, but Jesus. They start to operate in, in the same ways that Christ did. Greater works will you do than this, he says, right? Greater works. This guy was crippled from birth. It says when they proclaimed his healing in the name of Jesus Christ, he jumped up, praised the Lord, and went around telling everybody what they did. And then the religious people got word. That's how John and Peter ended up in jail. First they just put him in there, and then it was too late in the evening, so they decided to let him marinate a little bit until the next day. It says he kept him until the next day. And then they bring these men before us. What power? By what power did you do this? Who, who, what kind of voodoo are you practicing, right? That was kind of their thought. That religious spirit will always come at a power-filled believer who is obeying the word of God and doing something in obedience to his voice and say, what gives you the right to do that? Who do you think you are? Actually, I think I'm nobody apart from Christ. I'm just a daughter. I'm just a son. But God asked for this, so I'm going to do this. And we know it by our fruit, right? We know it by the fruit of it. When you look at the fruit, what comes out of it? Is it love? Is it forgiveness? Is it hope? Is it gentleness? Is it kindness? Is it multiplication of more disciples? Is it multiplication of more unity? What's the fruit? The fruit tells us the spirit that's behind what's being built. Amen? You know a tree by its what? By its fruit. Right? Are people's lives being changed? Are they becoming more humble? Do they look like Jesus? Are they learning how to operate and participate with Holy Spirit where that's normal? That's fruit. That's all fruit. It says in Acts 4, 23 and 24, so they, they heal the guy. They get put in jail. They are asked all these questions, and I, I just, I can so relate to Peter because I am like open mouth, insert foot sometimes, you know. Um, I think God, quite frankly, thinks it's funny. I'll be honest with you. I think he created me that way because he loves to surprise the religious spirit. <laughs> I can imagine in this moment, Peter and John standing before the Pharisees in the, in the, in the Sanhedrin, 
And they're trying to figure out how they did this. I love this. And it says uh, in verse 2 of Acts 4, Then the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John speaking, and they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people the, and, pro, and the proclamation of the resurrection of the dead. They were teaching the people about the gospel and the fact that if they believed in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they would raised up with him one day. It says they were disturbed. One good thing that has happened in these last three years is that there's been a separating of the wheat from the chaff. There are people that have been disturbed by the message of the kingdom, by the message of the truth, by simple facts like the reality that we shouldn't practice witchcraft, that we shouldn't be murdering our babies. They're disturbed by these conversations. It's that same spirit, that spirit of Herod. It has not changed the political spirit, that same spirit, that spirit of the Sadducees, that religious spirit. God has not changed. His ways have not changed. It says, the next days, the rulers and elders and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. And they began to question by what power or name did John and Peter do this. And I love this. This is what Holy Spirit does for us. Have you ever been in a public meeting where somebody's trying to call you to task and then the boldness of God just comes on you? Or in a situation maybe with a boss or someone in authority and the boldness of God just comes on you, you think, I know that had to be God because I was really nervous coming into this meeting, but you lit me up and I can't believe that just came out of my mouth. I think it's going to get worse now. <laughs> Anybody? Yeah, y'all, I know y'all have witnessed me do it, okay? Recently even. Amen? So listen, he says, <laughs> oh gosh, I love this. By what power and what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed Come on. He got even stronger. He's like, listen, I've been where you've been. I've said what you're saying, and I'm telling you, this is the real deal. This is the real deal. And then even more boldness, Holy Spirit gives Peter. He says, the stone you builders rejected which has become the capstone. We've kind of gotten into a soft gospel that doesn't want to confront things anymore. Love confronts. Love has hard conversations. He, they always, it's always done in love. He's not saying this to these people because he doesn't love me. He's saying it because he does. He's saying it because he cares. He's saying it because he's been where they are, thinking he's all this and all that. Right? And he's, the boldness the Holy Spirit gives him is out of a reality that he needed the cross that bad, and he recognizes what he was in them. And there's the pleading of the Lord Jesus Christ, like we talked about today. The Lord is on his knees sometimes weeping, weeping because Peter finally gets it, right? And he cares for them like Jesus cared for them. 
Remember, it was coming down the road, and it says, oh, how Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to cover you with my wings, to take you under my wings, but you would not. Right? And I just wonder if that same tone was in Peter's voice, but you would not. And the, oh, I wish you would, but I know that you won't. I mean, even with Judas, he went where he belonged. I mean, that just grieves my heart. It is not God's will that any should perish, and yet some still do. Peter goes on and says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. In other words, he speaks straight to that religious spirit and says, Nothing you do, nothing you know, Nothing you practice by tradition is going to save you except the name and the finished work of Jesus Christ represented by the lamb that was slaughtered when you were in Egypt and the blood that was put on the doorpost. He is that one. So Holy Spirit gives us boldness in the midst of persecution. These guys are coming after him and Peter's like, okay, let's do this. I'm going to do the throwdown showdown. Right? And sometimes we get, I call it like a boldness hangover. You get out of the situation and the anointing's gone, and you're like, Lord, why did you have me say that? Right? Your flesh starts talking to you. Like, whoo, man, I should have just kept my mouth shut. But the Lord's like, no, thank you, good job. Well done, servant. You obeyed me. You said what I told you to say. Yeah. And then in Acts 4, 23 through 30, it says, upon their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. And I love that it tells us that Peter and John went back and told their people. Because we've got something operating as false humility and false mercy and false love in the church that says, you can't talk about anything that somebody did to you. It's gossip. Love covers all. Yeah, it does cover it. But that doesn't mean you can't tell people what's going on. We need to know. How are we going to discern right from wrong, wheat from chaff, if we don't talk about stuff? That's not being mean. That's just calling a spade a spade. Right? It says they went back and reported all, every single detail. They didn't leave nothing out. They didn't graciously just go, oh, it was kind of discouraging, and they weren't very happy with us, but all is well. We're praying for them. No, they said, those boys put us in jail. Those boys let us stay in jail overnight. Those boys started to question us, and then Holy Spirit came on Peter, and Peter was like, bam, you killed him. You crucified him. This is the gospel. Jesus is the Messiah, the only way for salvation, right? And they told them everything that happened. It says, and then they raise their voices together in prayer. And I love this. This is Holy Spirit still causes us to raise our voices in prayer. Who were they praying for? They were praying for them. So when something like this happens and the Holy Spirit comes on us and makes us proclaim something bold and then that religious spirit rears its head and comes against us through people, we still go back and we raise our voices in prayer for them. And the truth is, if they hadn't prayed in that moment, we never would have gotten Saul to change to Paul. Because he was one. He was a Pharisee, a Pharisee among Pharisees, he says. 
And we're in that season again where that political spirit and that religious spirit is coming hard after us. And it's so tempting to go back and tell all and then be like, you know, releasing curses on them, right? But no. What do they do? They raise their voices in prayer. Father, have mercy. Right? I love this. Verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, this referring to the Pharisees, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. You don't have to go get a theological degree to share the gospel in a mighty and powerful way. And just because someone has a theological degree doesn't make them better or higher or more qualified than you. The Lord chose fishermen, several fishermen. And he equipped them and trained them and sent them out with power. And I'm not saying theological degrees are wrong. I'm not. It's good to get equipped. But what I am saying is do not put your trust in that degree or that piece of paper or that institution and think now that you've got that, you've got the power. Because the power comes from Holy Spirit and from the love of God and out of a place of obeying and obeying and obeying again. Going from faith to faith, being filled more and more with the glory of God. So in 423, I just want to make sure we got one. Well, we'll go to 28. It says, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Referring to the Pharisees. In other words, Lord, you allowed this. Just like you allowed Jesus to go to the cross, you allowed this trial in my life. John and Peter, you allowed us to get arrested so that we could have this conversation. Suffering is not necessarily not from God. Oftentimes, to reach the Saul's, we have to go through hell in a handbasket so we can have the conversation where they actually listen to what God wants to say to them. And he takes us through these pinnacles and pathways of pain and places us in a place where the anointing comes and we boldly proclaim like Peter exactly and everything God wants us to say so that they will say exactly what these individuals said. When they saw the courage, they knew. They realized they had an epiphany. They must have been with him. Come on. But as they're praying in the back of the place, it says they did what your power and your will had decided should be happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats, okay? So they still, some of them still came away threatening them. Consider, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Lord, give me more boldness. Do it again. That's a heart that's on fire for Jesus. I'm willing to take the painful path again. I'm willing to stand on the pinnacle of being persecuted so that your name can go forth and your kingdom can come and your will can be done. Lord, do it again. Come on. When's the last time you heard somebody pray that in a prayer meeting? Use me again, Abba. Put me in that place again. Put the squeeze on me so I can say what you want said so the Saul's can become Paul's. I believe with all of my heart the power of the Holy Spirit in this movement that we're coming into is restoring all things back to the place, even in the body of Christ, where we're going to say, yes, Lord, we welcome the persecution. We welcome the pain. Did you know that in China right now, 
They are so persecuted. They're putting people in jail and hammering their knees and torturing them physically. And they're still, still praising God. And the gospel is still spreading like wildfire, multiplying across the world. There are individuals and women who are selling themselves into slavery with the Arabs so that they can reach Iraq and Iran with the gospel of Christ. Come on. Selling themselves in the sex trade so they can spread the gospel. Blows my mind. And I do believe the Lord weeps. And I look at that and I say, I see the courage of these precious believers. And I say, Lord, what you've put me through is nothing. Here I am. Send me again. But we cannot do that without the power of Holy Spirit. And only by the power of Holy Spirit. And as we go from faith to faith and say yes over and over and over again and stay in the hard places, we become more and more like Jesus. And we go literally It says we go from faith to faith and glory to glory. The only glorious one is God himself. And we wonder why he said it pleases God to crush him. He multiplied his grace and his glory and his goodness and his love in us so that we could do even greater works. And a separation happens. A separation happens from... Those of us who say, yeah, I just want my insurance. I just want my fire insurance. I just want to get in. And those who say, yeah, I want to serve you and I want this awesome position. I'm good with that. That's as far as I want to go. That's the 60-fold. And the 100-fold that says, I surrender all. Whatever the cost Do it again, Abba. And I love that verse that says, she who's forgiven much loves much because the truth is we can't love beyond the level to which we recognize we need to be loved and forgiven. So if we're in a place where we're struggling with that, I encourage you, I challenge you, ask Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, show me the places where I'm missing it so I can receive more forgiveness, more love, so I can understand the price that was paid individually for me better and in turn love him more. I'm not talking about self-condemnation here. I'm talking about revelation of the reality of your need for a Savior. We don't keep our eyes stayed on us. We don't keep our eyes stayed on the problem. We keep our eyes on him. But when that becomes a reality, that Holy Spirit boldness rises up in you in a way that's inexplicable. It's not natural. It's literally supernatural. Go ahead and go to the next slide, sweetheart. Acts 4.31, when Peter and John went back, others were impacted by their obedience and inspired to pray for the very persecutors that were harming them. They were emboldened by Peter and John's willingness to stand before that religious spirit and say, it is written, it is written, it is written, and we will choose him. 
will you? Right? They go back, they tell their story, and, and all the other believers are inspired to pray. We'll read it again. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And get this. Look at this next verse. This is beautiful. It says, after they prayed. The place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Someone that speaks the word of God boldly is an indicator of one who's operating in the Holy Spirit. And when Peter and John went through that difficulty and then came, and everyone saw it, and they came back and shared the details of what happened and began to pray for their persecutors, it says Holy Spirit came on everyone else in that room. They too were filled. They asked for boldness. They may not even have been asking for themselves. They may have been asking for John and Peter, but Holy Spirit said, nah, not just them. I don't play favorites. I'm going to pour it out on everybody in the room. And they got it. They got the boldness to preach and to proclaim the gospel boldly. The Lord's like, I'm not stopping here. This isn't about a one-man show, a one-woman show. This is about my son filling those that believe with his glory and sending you all out and multiplying prototypes, new creations, making you all new creations and sending you out in power, sending you out in boldness, sending you out with signs, wonders, and miracles. Yeah, turn to your neighbor say, neighbor, that's you. That's you. He's calling you. He's calling you. Not just me. He's calling you. He's calling us, all of us. Acts 4.32 goes on and it says, all the believers, I love this, were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own, but they shared everything they had. They were so in love with the Lord, so enamored with what he did on their behalf. So in this prayer that they prayed as fruit of that reality, that they were one in heart, Lord, I surrender all. Remember when Old Testament, he says, I'll take out your stony heart and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll give you a new heart, right? The love of God had been poured out in their heart through Christ Jesus, their Lord. They were baptized with a new heart. That's why you can walk into a room sometime. I, Patty and I were kind of talking about this. That deep calls unto deep, and you go, man, I just love you because I know you love Jesus. It's so easy to be in your presence because you're sold out for him. And it just ministers to my heart. And we get in a room with people who love Jesus like that, and it's just like, oh, it's like a drink of fresh water because we're one in heart. It's his heart, right? And it just knits us together. We don't have to try to create unity or force unity. Unity happens when we're so in love with Jesus that when Jesus speaks, even if it means I have to cut off a part of my proverbial arm, and it, because it's contrary to the kingdom, I say, it is yours, take it. 
glorify your name, Abba, right? Lyra and I had a great conversation about this this morning, about cultures, right? What knits us together is the king in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. To the measure that he's in us, to the measure that he's in the other others around us, and we have that one heart, is the measure that we're drawn together to decree and declare and pray his kingdom come, his will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And the more we look like him, it says one heart and mind, the more we think like him, the more we allow him to love us, the more we receive his forgiveness, the more we have one heart with him. Because we understand his mercy. We understand the cross. We understand their need for forgiveness, right? And then we start to get the same mind. Our thoughts look like his thoughts. It says we've been given the mind of Christ. I didn't say that. That's in the scripture. Because innately, in and of ourselves, we can't think good and noble and praiseworthy thoughts. But in Christ, because our heart's been made new, we sure can. Our spirit takes charge. We're a new creation, and we can take any and every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ that doesn't align with his heart. And so we go into places like this, and we go, man, this is family. This is family, right? All the believers were one heart and mind. So imagine with me what that might look like. It says, no one claimed any of their possessions were his own, but they shared everything they had. And I've seen that here in this body. When Jake passed, everybody showed up over at Lear's to take care of business. Everybody that could. They cleaned out the house, filled up the dumpster. When Shane left, everybody was checking on me, calling, how are you doing? Are you okay? What can, is there anything I can do? When Patty was having family members who were sick, everybody's checking in. Hey, we're praying for this. We're praying for that. We're standing with you. God is able. And we saw healings, and we saw wholeness and restoration, and we saw kindness and compassion and encouragement because Christ causes us to be of one heart and one mind. So we operate as one body, and we respond with his heart in a way that honors him, in a way that edifies and builds up the body and the individuals around us, right? Isn't that awesome? What a privilege. What a sweet, sweet privilege we have. I'll go ahead and go to the next slide, Mike. Thank you. As I was meditating on that word, one heart, I was realizing it's the answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17. We use this scripture all the time when we talk about being one body. Those that are baptized in the Holy Spirit are already one. Jesus says, all I have is yours, and all you have is mine, talking to the Father. And glory has come to me through them because they believed, right? I will remain in the world no longer, and he's talking to his father. But they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. And I love this next line. This gives us a picture of Christ's heart towards you, towards me, towards every believer. 
He says, Holy Father, protect them. (laughs) Protect them by the power of your name. The name you gave me, Yeshua HaMashiach. Why? So that they may be one as we are one. It was the first time when I read that today, it was like I heard it from the perspective of a husband crying out to his father about his bride. Almost like the Lord was saying, I've been here, I've seen and experienced and tasted fleshliness and greed and sin on a level that has granted me grace to be compassionate toward them. Protect them. I see how weak they can be. I have felt the temptations. I've been tempted in every way yet without sin. So, Father, if I was tempted without sin, I I am intimately acquainted with what it's going to require for them to be made one with us. Protect them. So that they may be one as we are one. So they can have the same strength you've given me. So they can have the same glory you've given me. So they can have the same compassion and grace and power and ability to set people free that you've given me. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? Go ahead and go to the next slide. It goes on in 17.22 through 23 of John and says, And Jesus says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. What did Jesus say? He says, I only say what the Father, I hear the Father say, and I only do what I see the Father do, right? I only do what my Father shows me. So he's praying for us to be so one with them that we will only say what we hear him say, And we'll only do what he shows us to do. We won't operate out of presumption. We won't try to build things that are not of him. We'll just have a simplicity of devotion to our kingsman redeemer, to our father, God, who adopted us into his family. He goes on, Jesus says, I in them and you in me. So that means that God is in us. I in them, Jesus said, and you in me. So that means God is in him, in us. I in them, Jesus said, and you in me. That means Yudhe Vavhe is in Jesus, in us. The creator of the universe dwells on the inside of you, son of God, daughter of God. What do you think about that? May they be brought to complete unity, right? That tells me that there's a a season where maybe we're partially unified. There's parts of us that are in line with the Lord, and there's parts of us that are like, yeah, I'm not quite there yet. That's why there's 30, 60, 100 fold, right? Because it's a process, and we do go from faith to faith and glory to glory. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know what? That you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. That's Jesus' heart towards you. I want to take you and, and bring you where I am. 
and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So the greatest evangelism tool in the world is that you would have one heart and one mind with Christ, that you would be one with the Lord, that you would walk in such devotion and obedience to him out of the love that he's already lavished on you, right? Out of that place of knowing you're loved, out of the place of being made in a creation, that when they see you, the only response they could have is, yeah, Jesus must have come because I knew Stephanie before Christ and I know her now and that is definitely a miraculous work. There had to be divine intervention somewhere because that is not the same person. Amen? Come on. And in the second piece, I love this too, right? We talk about being seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Listen to this prayer. This is God has answered the Lord's prayer. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. When we operate in the third heaven, we're seeing things in the spirit. We're where he is in the heavenly realm. That prayer is being answered. To see his glory, the glory God has given him. When we operate in the supernatural, that brings Christ joy because it's an answer to his prayer. We're operating in the finished work. His sacrifice was not for naught. You know? I mean, that's awesome, isn't it? Last slide, please. John 17, 25 through 26. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. Referring to the believers. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that what? The love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. Jesus' number one goal is that the love that the Father has for him would be in us and that same love would be reflected back so much so that Christ would be formed in us. I myself may be in them. And again, I don't know how this is for guys, but I think of it more as a marital thing, right? Like a husband that so loves his wife, he wants to be one with her, close to her, in her heart, all the time. I mean, this goes into the prophecies that talk about the hearts of the fathers being turned towards the children and the hearts of the children being turned towards the fathers. The love of the father, he's asking right here that the love that God has for Jesus would be in us. That blows my mind. And then it goes on later, and Paul tells us the love of God has been, has been, past tense, poured out into our hearts through Christ Jesus our Lord. When we receive the gift of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, we are literally the love of God. Father God is poured out in our hearts. That's why we can't continue down the same path. It's impossible. And if you can... Double check whether or not you really received the gift and you understand the fact that you need it. 
Amen? I'm just saying. It's impossible to have tasted and seen the reality that we need him and still plow on through life like we're no different. So what is the one heart? It's the love of the Father and the lifestyle of Jesus. What is Pentecost all about? It's about becoming one with him. Not by works, not by might, not by something we have to do, but by believing God so loved you. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And we heard that and we know that, but this oneness, this one heart with him is the key. The greatest gift I can give to God, the greatest gift you can give to God is to choose to love like he loves and to choose to say yes when he sends you to your proverbial persecuting pinnacle cross, whatever that is for you, so that Christ can be formed in you. It's the only offering we really can give back to him. He created the world. He created all the gold and the money, right? So he's not, like, interested in our tithes. The tithe isn't for him. It's for us. Amen? But he made us free will. He gave us free will. The only thing we can give him back is our yes, our whole heart, our life. It's like we ourselves step into the offering plate and say, here I am, send me. And we do that over and over and over again. And every time we do that, Christ in us is formed more fully. And we look more and more like the prototype. And more and more people gather around that don't know Christ, that are not yet saved. And they say, look at that one. Jesus must be real. He really is the Son of God. And Holy Spirit moves through us and works through us to bring conviction and compassion and wholeness, and healing, and hope to people who are absolutely lost. That's why we have Pentecost. It's the answer to Jesus' prayer that we may be made one. And on the day of Pentecost, the power of the Holy Spirit came, which makes that possible. And it is not by moit, moit, <laughs> It's not by might nor by power, right, but by the spirit of the living God. So we're just going to, for our activation today, do some decrees. So I just want you to repeat after me. Say, I have the love of God within me. I have Jesus Christ within me. I have God himself within me. You are literally divinely crafted before the foundation of the world, arcs and tabernacles where the very presence of God dwells. That's why everywhere the sole of your foot treads, you're successful. It's because he's in you. Father, I just ask this Pentecost that you would grant us our harvest of wheat, whatever it is we've been praying for, 
these, these people that we've been praying for this last year. I ask for the harvest of wheat, and I ask for the counting of the omer, for the first fruits of the barley, whatever harvest you want to bring in in that way, how that is represented in our lives. And I ask, Father God, for a fresh baptism of your love, a fresh baptism of Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we give you permission to come and have your way in us, to shift anything that needs to be shifted in our heart, in our mind, in our lives, in our circumstances, so that we can be one with the Father, one with Jesus, and more clearly and consistently reflect your perfect love to a world who is starving longing for you. And I ask this, this, that this year wouldn't just be another celebration of a feast or a day, but that we would leave this building today different, convinced, full of boldness, full of courage, full of a message from you, knowing that we know that we know the gospel and relationship with you is as simple as saying what we hear you say and doing what you show us to do. And that it's not something that we have to stir up in ourselves or it has to look a certain way, but we just simply obey out of love for you and love for the individual that you've called us to minister to. May you grant us the grace to do great exploits in your name and to do the greater works. We thank you for the ways that you're already moving through this body in generosity, in love, and in compassion, and in prophecy, and in decrees, and in healing, and in miracles, and in wonders, and signs when we go on our prophetic assignments. But we ask, Father God, that you wouldn't stop here. You wouldn't stop in this body. We thank you for the way that it's being done in other bodies as well. But, Father, we ask, as you've separated out the wheat from the chaff this year, that it would be normal for the whole body of Christ to operate in the fullness of of who you are, that it would be normal and that we would see a raising up of the fiery ones, a raising up of the generous ones, a raising up of the ones who are absolutely in love with you, lovers of God, lovers of Jesus, lovers of the way, willing servants and tabernacles and arts and vessels to lay down their life like Jesus did because we've been loved so well. And may this generation be your spotless bride without blemish, without spot. And we cry with all of the generations before us, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. We ask that you would send out the laborers into the harvest field to share boldly the gospel and that it would be accompanied with the signs and the wonders and the miracles. And there would be a supernatural ease and a supernatural rest upon your body that we don't have to try, we don't have to strive. We just know that we know that we know that we know that we know. You are good and you are God and you are able and you dwell in us. And if you told us to pray this prayer, 
it is going to shift, and that mountain will be moved and cast into the sea, and this individual will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We rededicate ourselves to you today on Pentecost. We thank you, Father, for baptizing us afresh. I ask just like that vision you showed that it would be an overflow, an overabundance of oil for not just those in this room, but for every single believer in the body of Christ, that you would cause us to overflow again with the overcomer's anointing, that you would cause us to burn for you. Thank you for listening today. Take a moment and ask Holy Spirit what he wants you to do with what you've learned. And remember, with God, all things are possible. So keep dreaming, keep praying, and simply obey because God is good, and he has good plans for you. You can subscribe to our blogs, learn about our speakers, and even hear from one of our team members how you can take part in transforming a city, your city with Christ. There's no time like the present. Visit ShekinahOnline.com. If this doesn't excite you, watch for our new and God-inspired product line, a newly released book by Stephanie Butler, more testimonies from our listeners like you, working to bring unity in cities across the world. If you feel led to support our podcast, you may do so on our Shekinah.com website. Or if you would like to support us monthly, there is a link labeled Listener Support on every podcast. Until next time, we thank you, we love you, have a blessed day.